All right, we're going to get started. All right. Oh, how do we transition from that? <laughs> but let me start, start in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this Wednesday night Bible study, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters and how you have just worked in our lives. You made yourself real to us. And Lord, we want to know you more. We come wanting to know your word, know you in a deeper way. And we just ask that you would teach us and lead us. I pray for the inspiration of your spirit to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive all that is yours. Teach us. Make us as yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so if you were, who was on my, besides Scott wasn't there, I think most of you guys were in my first Bible study class with the Genesis account. Were you there? Oh, you would miss that one. Okay. So recap. Genesis is my favorite book. But I, in that creation class, I said, most people don't know how to read the Bible correctly, especially Genesis. And in fact, a lot of people who questioned the integrity of the Bible was because they say it is like a far-fetched fable that was told around the, you know, the fireplace or the campfire. And you can't really believe in these miraculous stories. And it starts with the Genesis account. Now, if you remember, why did people question um, or have a hard time believing the Genesis account? What are some of the things that you might believe? Why is it hard to believe the Genesis? Doesn't match up from what you learn in school. Meaning, maybe the, um, the evolutionists are talking about this old earth, right? And how does the new earth or young earth theory come into play in, in this whole creation because we have all these scientific evidence. And, and so there is this um, discrepancy or the tension of what you're taught in school to what you find in the Bible. And I talked about you got to first know the genre of Genesis, and you can't extract information that doesn't is not in there, right? So the purpose of the Genesis account from the very beginning was about why, not how God created, but why God created. And we talked about the genre. What is the genre of Genesis? poetry it's poetry now why does that matter because when we read like a historical book and you read it in a very western mindset like and, and i kind of showed this before oh this is a long cable our western thinking is very linear our western thinking goes like this it's very directional you make a claim this is what i'm going to say and this is supporting of what I'm going to say or my argument claim. And then you make a conclusion that draws upon all the facts. You make a conclusion. So there's a claim, there's a support, and there's a conclusion. And often when we even tell a story, there's a linear movement of how we tell the story. In the Genesis account or even the um, 
ancient Near Eastern epic poetry or how the Hebrews spoke or told or wrote the Bible. It was not this linear, but almost like a picture or spider web that intertwines, right, and, and so on. It's almost like a picture, and they do not communicate in the same way as the Westerners. So have you guys ever had a conversation with people from another country, and they don't talk like you? Like, you can translate it, but you're still trying to understand why, because their style is so different. So we can't interject our Western style of communication into a culture that were hundreds or thousands of years before. But another thing is poetry. I don't know when was the last time you guys ever read poetry. I'm not a, much of a poet. Uh, but you cannot read poetry in the same way you read, let's say, a science book, textbook. Because poetry, if a picture is worth a thousand words, poetry goes beyond, let's say, four-line stanza that you might read. The depth of the meaning, there's a reason why people like start, hey, what does that make, what do you think the author meant? And you explore the the metaphors, the symbolisms, and everything behind it to paint the picture, trying to get grasp what those four lines might have meant. Right? So there, it goes way beyond what is said. And if we look at the genre of poetry in the Bible, there are many of Old Testament books written in this genre, including uh, wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Proverbs, prophecies prophecies and it could if you read prophet prophetic genre like isaiah or ezekiel or it's hard because you don't know when he's talking literal versus god's word that is talking about future or the past right if it's talking about the literal sin of what they're committed or it's prophesying of the christ that is to come a thousand years later. You don't know. That's what makes it so somewhat more complex. I would venture to say that when we read the Genesis, it's literal of what we read in God's creation account, the why, but also there is a prophetic that talks deeper um, understanding that God has released onto mankind, okay? So you guys know the Genesis? How many of you guys have read Genesis before? All right, all of us, all of us, right? No, no? All right. So let's just, let's just play what we know about Genesis. Um, how many men and women were there in the beginning? One of each. One of each. Good. That's good. Where did they live? Garden of Eden. Okay. Inside the garden, there were famous trees. Okay. What's the other one? Anyone know the other one? Tree of Life. Good. What's interesting is a lot of people don't know the Tree of Life. So I, I mentioned I had a conversation with somebody. And, say I, and the topic of tonight's lesson is, I said, between two trees. That's the topic. And somebody said, 
There were two trees? <laughs> because m- most people remember the one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They ought to read about the tree of life. It's almost as if it's in- insignificant, where it's something that you just brush because you remember the Adam and Eve, and they fell because they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and people somehow think that that's an apple. How many, right, painting? Yeah, and people even just say short, and it's that darn apple. They're like, where did apple come into play? But people interject based on what you have heard or seen or pictured, and they remember that. Nobody remembers the tree of life. The tree, two trees. So, based on what we're saying, it's poetry. I'm saying... I believe there were literal two trees in that garden, just as God said. But I believe there is this depth of meaning of what these two trees mean. And it wasn't just a plant. I believe there are far more. Okay? So let's, let's just talk about it. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil. What gives knowledge of good and evil? Without looking at Scott here, I want to give to others. What gives you knowledge of good and evil? Or knowledge of right and wrong? Or knowledge of truth and error? What do you think? Where have you studied or been to or heard that gave you knowledge of good and evil? What's the standard? In, in, our, in our life. What have you studied that gave you such knowledge? Now this Scott comes into play. Let's start with education. In an area of education that says what is right or wrong. Hmm? Ethics? That could. Oh, that gets deep. That, that's a, they, ethics go into the gray areas. <laughs> but uh, bear with me. The law. Yeah. Areas of various laws gives a standard of what is right and wrong, good or evil, right? The knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge, the the intellect or the information that gives the standard of right and wrong in our 21st century living is the law. The law gives us that understanding. When do you know that you broke the law. You get away. <laughs> when you mess up. When you don't abide by it. Here's the interesting thing about the law is that the law doesn't care when you do right. It only cares if you do wrong. Right? The law does not care about all the times that you are doing right. In, in fact, you can be the most careful driver, Jeffrey. 
the best driver, law-abiding citizen, but it won't commend you for what a safe driver you are. They might give you the license that says safe driver. Big deal, right? <laughs> Small subtext. But when you are in a hurry one day and you are trying to get to your appointment and you run that stop sign, that's when the law says, uh-uh. You're getting a ticket, and you're going to be punished and reap the consequence of your action. I don't care about all the other you know, 50 plus years you've been a safe driver. It's when you break the law that the law says you have broken the law. You have shor come short of the standard. That's the law. That's the nature of the law. That's the nature of the knowledge of the right and wrong. The law system enforces that. Okay, we, we talked about the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I think is symbolic of the law. What about the tree of life? What do you think? Jesus abolishing the law. Good. He, he's going right to the, to the answer. Okay. <laughs> well, there are many examples, but um, I'm in complete agreement. But maybe you can in just entertain. In Genesis 2, 7, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he was raised, given life. John three sixteen, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son, and this is Jesus speaking, will have everlasting life. John five twenty one, the Son gives life to whom he chooses. John six thirty five, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. John ten ten, Jesus said, I am the one that come, that you may have life and have it abundantly. The word there is zoe, uh, life. And John eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Romans six twenty three, uh, wrote, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Colossians three four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And I, there are many more examples. I could go on. But there is this correlation between life, life giver, the source of life, who gives life, bears fruit of life is God. And Jesus Christ, his son, is a source and giver of life from the very beginning. You guys with me so far? Good? Good. Okay. long as we don't object to that, we're in a good shape. Now, we talked about the knowledge of good and evil, one tree. And the other tree at the center of this garden is tree of life. And yet, there was only one law from the very beginning. And that was, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of life. Now, how many trees, plants, kind of fruits do you think might be available for Adam and Eve in the garden in the very beginning? Unlimited amount. Yeah, fresh, freshest, organic Right? The choicest fruits. Only one tree. One tree. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life. In fact, they had access to the tree of life from the very beginning. It was always there. They could eat from any tree in the garden. Any fruit in the garden. Just not this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why do you think that Adam and Eve focus on the one that they did not were not allowed to have
<laughs> well, I I if we study that, I think he did point it out so they saw how pleasing it looked, good to the eye, it was nutritious, and the other temptation, the kicker was, you can be like God, right? You guys remember that? So th they were tempted, they were appealed to, to the eyes, to the mind, and to their heart. They saw the appeal. But there were so many other fruits available. Yeah. It's temptation. Why do, why do you think it was temp tempting? I, and I'm just, oh, I'm not teaching here. I'm, I, why do you think of the, what was the appeal? He got the whole garden, all the fruit. Isn't it funny that they were made in the image of God, they were like God, they were made king and queen over the empire to rule over everything that God created, everything that was God's were given to them. I mean, they had the authority over tigers, lions, snakes, everything were under their feet, even the fish and birds of the air, complete authority ruler as king and queen. Um... They were made in the image of God, the cr their creator. And the temptation was, and you can be like God? They were the highest authority on the land, and they want to be higher? They were already like God, but hey, consider that temptation. You can be like God. You were already like God. But what? <laughs> right? Yeah, th there's a twist that we are not like God, or Adam and Eve were not like God. In what way? But they were already were. Had the authority, the power, and the possession, and the image. In every way, they were like God. But the Satan's temptation was, you can be like God. That was a temptation. When we choose from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when we choose from the tree of the law, there is the temptation that you can be like God. There is a temptation that you are falling short of the standard of this law. Uh, and, and I, I want to expound on that. I think that the two trees that were in the garden were always available to Adam and Eve. Tree of life. Okay, another pop quiz. Without reading the, from, from the scriptures, why were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? Which tree? No. Good try. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, without reading and studying, we can easily breeze through the story of what we remember and make up without 
and, and this is why I want to bring it to your attention. Just consider, and don't be afraid of I'm joking and teasing. But <laughs> why do you think that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? Because of the sin, okay. But what else? Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. They were kicked out and there was a cherubim with a, a flaming sword to keep them from coming back to give access to what? The tree of life. Lest they will live forever. In their sin. Okay, let me read this for you. Okay, after they threw each other under the bus and yeah, and blamed each other and God gives them this um, judgment, you know, you're going to bear pain, work, childbearing, all of that, okay? There's all that curse. Uh-huh. Okay, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become one of us in knowing good and evil. Now he lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, the tree of life is mentioned twice in that subject judgment. That separation and being kicked out of the garden was because the tree of life it was there. Lest they would take, eat, and live forever in their sin. Why is that significant? In the beginning, the tree of life was always available for eternal life for Adam and Eve. It was always available. But they did not eat of it. Consider that. They always had access, but they didn't eat of it. It's like, darn it. Have you ever had something like, you should have taken it when you had the chance, and you missed it, and you look, only you knew afterwards. Darn it, I missed it. <laughs> or Apple when they were pennies. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember, 96, 96, 97. All right. I want you to consider that. Adam and Eve had access to the two trees and everything else from the very beginning, but they focused their attention on the tree of knowledge of good and evil because they want to be like God. Today, and I said, that's the law, and there's life. There is the law, and I can expound on that to be religious because uh, if you look at the whole Old Testament and the curse and the subject of the story, uh, the law was given through Moses. But it was a standard of God's standard that people could not fulfill. And the law subjected themselves to say, you fall short of, to reveal that they could not keep the standards. But the Bible is really clear that God was there from the very beginning. 
walk with him if they would choose him. There was always a choice of the two trees from the very beginning. Now, how that source of life, giver of life, Jesus, is accessed, it's different throughout history, but the offering was always there. Okay. But let me talk about the, um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or the law. I mentioned that the law has a tendency to, the temptation is to be like God. Let me apply that to church. Let me apply that to Christian walk. When did people act like God? Maybe in a religious setting, whether Old Testament, New Testament. Have you ever seen people act so judgmental, you are doing wrong? You are in sin, judging, telling you you are falling short. The Pharisees did that even with Jesus. They were the religious scribes, teachers of the law, rabbis. They were, taught, they were supposed to be the experts of God, but they were, what they were were experts of God's law, but they did not know God. In fact, they were face-to-face with Jesus and they did not recognize God himself, right? So they were experts of the law. And what did they do? What was their action? They were judgmental. They were critical. They talked about how Jesus broke the law over and over and said, you can't possibly be a man of God or even from him because you're breaking. They were critical. They were listening to the perfect sermons of Jesus and saying, you're preaching wrong. Maybe it's your style. Did you guys know that um, in some churches, pastors have to preach in certain voice? (laughs) Sarah has been talking about this. In some cultures or cultures of churches, like in Korea, at a certain time in history, all preachers had to speak in a certain way, with certain voice and certain intonation. Uh, There was a time when Billy Graham was, you know, the right preacher of preachers and how many Korean pastors preach like Billy Graham because because he's a standard no it's kind of funny but it's true and if you didn't (laughs) people said hey there's a certain standard that ought to happen in the church and you have to act like that if you don't act like that, then you're falling short of the standard. Yvette, in your story, you talked about going to a, a Pentecostal church that was very rigorous, right? And I can only imagine. I, haven't, I don't even know what church you're talking about, but I can only imagine the kind of church. I think you described it, your maybe former church to being that. There are some churches that are so rigid that say, here is a standard. You have to dress a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to sit a certain way. And you have to bring that Bible with a case, <laughs> with the tabs, and you have to bring it to every time you come to church. And it has to be King James. In some traditions, it has to be King James. No other tra- translation will be acceptable. Right? There's a standard, and people will criticize you if you do not fall to their standard. 
Jeffrey, you want to say something? Oh, okay. <laughs> I felt like I, I was getting a reaction. I was like, oh, he, he wants to join. <laughs> There is no end. E- even the Jewish law that uh, the Pharisees kept alluding to that Jesus broke, they had some, a book of Talmud, which is like encyclopedia of the law book that expounded on uh, the Old Testament law. So they, it's like, okay, there were 600 some number of uh, commandments, like 365 negative and 256, I think. Uh, positive commandments they said 600 some laws not enough let's expound on this and they had encyclopedia or series of books scrolls that expounded on each law because they love the law there are some religious people who love the law more than they love God now as I mentioned the law only shows up when you do wrong and points out when you fall short it does not, it's often not used in a way to build you up. Like how many times we, have you been um, pointed out that you're doing wrong to make you feel good? <laughs> oh, you're not doing it right. I hope that makes you feel good. No, it always makes us feel bad. Even, in the, even when people are doing it with the right heart, it's like, hey, man, I really want to raise you up. But when we correct, even in love, it still doesn't feel good. And that could be in the best case scenario. We don't like being correct. We don't like being in wrong. But when the religious, especially in a religious setting, we want to be built up, especially in our 21st century church, are criticized or even called a sinner, ooh, it doesn't feel good at all. And when it happens in the church, it gives fruit. You know, Jesus said, um, you can know the identity of the tree by its fruit. He said it many times. So many examples. He said, you can know, uh, Matthew twelve thirty three. either make the tree good or it, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit, right? Uh, John 15, 8, by the fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and, you, and so prove to be my disciples. He says, by your fruit you will show if you are my disciples. Uh, there are, oh yeah, there's a lot more examples. Uh, Luke 6.44, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Okay. If we were to ask, what does a fruit of knowledge of good and evil look like? What would it look like? In our 21st century context, what would... If somebody who eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, how do you think it, that might look like? What's the fruit? It won't look like an apple. But what would it look like in their life? 
depends on the person. Mm. Okay. More money, more power. Okay. Highly judgmental. Critical. Yeah. I was thinking that. Very religious. But do you think they're, f th even the most religious, do you think they're following up on their own religiosity? <laughs> right? If they're creating the standard, are they living up to that standard? Probably not. Oh, yeah, 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 Newsom, um, Whitmer, yep. Yeah, they love to set standards for others, what they can and cannot do, but they themselves are above. And that is like power. That is like being God. They like telling others what to do, but they themselves won't subject themselves. Because in the, even the most religious can set their standards, but they themselves won't follow that. They can't. Yeah. What about the person who eats from the tree of life? What would he, she look like? This one should be easy, guys. Come on. Say Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think it's this one. Okay, yeah. Jesus said in John six forty seven, Truly, truly, I say to whoever believes uh, has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And, and the bread that, he, that I will give for, for the life of the world is my flesh. flesh. Okay. And, and there he says, if anyone eats of this bread. The way that Greek word is translated, it's not so clear in our English translation, but in the original uh, Greek translation, or Greek, the Greek language has this time aspect that English doesn't have. So I could tell you, eat this bread. And I could mean, eat it now, you know, just one time, until you finish. Or I can tell you, hey man, I'm going to give you a lifetime supply, eat of it. And that means you keep eating it because there's going to be continual source that's going to come, right? There is time aspect in the language that when we read of it, is it one time or is it keep on until it's complete? And the way Jesus says is if anyone eats and keeps on eating, you are to keep on eating continuously, nonstop, until he tells you to stop. So the aspect is this continuous time aspect. He says, how much are we supposed to eat from his tree of life, his bread of life, the manna from heaven? Nonstop. I, it's the same aspect of the, uh, 
if anyone abides in me, he is the vine, it's the continuous relationship. So it's not a one-time deal. It's not a one-time salvation. I give my life to the Lord and say, hey, I'm done. No, that's just the beginning. You keep walking. You keep eating. You keep living the life as Christ. That's what the fruit looks like. In the beginning, there was always the two trees available for Adam and Eve. In our lifetime, there's always two trees, I'm saying. The temptation for many of us and religious people and the churches, not you guys, I'm talking about in general, is that we can be like God if we keep the law, do right, and avoid sin. That's the temptation. And that's what has been taught intentionally or unintentionally. And let me say that with a disclaimer that I probably fall into that category. In past, I meant well. And I'm saying I, as a pastor, leader of church, and how I have been trained. So here's what we're trained in, in seminary. I don't care how good you can expound on the word in your sermon until you tell them how to do it in the application until you answer the so what and that is what does it look like in your life then you have not successfully preached that message that's what we're taught so always I'm writing what do I want them to know and what do I want them to do like we focus on the action what does that look like in my life if you do to live this principle to be like Jesus. And we expound on and This is the training of seminaries. We expound on what it looked like in our life by action. So what do people hear? I got to do this and not do that. That's what people hear. Not the heart or the expounding of the text and the word. They hear the conclusion. You can't drink and you have to not have sex. And you, right? Th- these are the like hardcore teachings of evangelical churches. You got to be right wing. <laughs> and often it's, it's a don't, don't, don't. Yeah. Otherwise, you fall short of the standard. And why do peop- ke- people keep doing it? Because they don't want to be judged. Because people in the church judge. Uh, you know, I'm actually going to be preaching on freedom this weekend. <laughs> And this, yeah, this, this is something that um, I think God has been teaching me. It's been a process. And I think in one sense, God was, I said, detoxing me from the former churches and the former church ways. And I so appreciate the resting place because of the freedom. But it's not just the freedom of our current pastors and the sermons were being let's say charismatic and the worship style that's not what I'm talking about it's a freedom to be who you are and that is different than the person you're sitting next to because the religious will say my way or the highway my standard or I will judge you if you don't do this church thing you're going to be looked down upon 
Oh, that tattoo? No, uh, uh. I don't care if it has a cross, right? That's just not acceptable in whatever, fill in the blank, denomination, church politics, or whatever it may be. They don't accept differences. It's right or wrong. You guys hear me? We're allowed to be different as long as we're not in sin. And I think what I love about the resting place is this culture that says we're just going to honor everyone, love everyone, empower everyone, and even that is acceptable. (laughs) But you're free to be different because God has made you to be different. Sorry. This is what I get for turning on sound. I always have it on silent, and she allowed me to. Anyways, we, when we, the fact that we come to church is that we want to be like Jesus. And that's our natural tendency. But many churches teach religion, right and wrong, how to do be right. And, and do you know when people become religious? And, and this is just my hindsight. There was a time that I can look back and there was a time that I knew that I was right. I read the Bible cover to cover. I was leading all these, and this is before I became a pastor. I was leading these small groups and then had success and this and that. And I was becoming mature. I was considered a church leader. And that's when I became religious. Is when I believed that I was right. I believed that I studied enough that I knew the Bible enough to be dangerous. I knew just enough to be religious and to be dangerous. I had debates with people and I knew they were wrong. (laughs) And then I studied more. And the more I studied, the more I realized how little I knew. And the more I studied, the more humbled I became. And how there were many different views that I learned to accept. I could not be arrogant to say, I'm right and you're wrong. But there are differences. And I look back in my early 30s when I thought I was right, and I laugh. Why was I so arrogant? Why was I so judgmental? Why did I think that I was so right when I was so wrong? And I, and I look back, and that happens in all places. People can read the... So I love that you're hungry and you're seeking, right? And I think that's the, the childlikeness. You're just hungry. You want more and more. It's dangerous when we get to a point where it's like, oh, I had my fill, and I have arrived. Um, I know some of the most intelligent, accomplished academic men uh, in around Cambridge. It's kind of interesting. In Cambridge, like, you, you can, somebody said you can swing a cat and hit five PhDs. <laughs> like, everybody has PhDs over there around Cambridge. There's Boston, there's Harvard, MIT, and just, like, my Bible study class that I led, um, the church that I was interning in, uh, smack in the middle of MIT and Harvard on Franklin Street. I mean, a block from um, 
uh, the train station that was in between the two schools. My Bible class had PhD Harvard students and MIT grad students and iBankers and like, what the heck is <laughs> like everybody, you know, academic level, and they were all like, no, not all. Many of them were so confident because they were super smart. But the people I met who had multiple PhDs and like professors or whatever, I saw how humble they were, which was a shocker compared to that culture of Cambridge. And not all of them are like that. I'm saying the believing, smart people that I met. Realize, especially in the 20s and the 30s, and they flash their card or a resume that says all these acronyms after their names, and they're prideful. There are people who have studied surpassing that, and all they have come to conclude is how little they know. And I, it's including me, it's a far stretch that are we seeking God's standard or are we seeking the standard of the world that, hey, I am greater than that, I am like God, I can tell you that you're wrong or I'm better than you. That's the religious spirit. Or are we seeking God's standard that is far surpassing? Um, you guys heard of, you guys heard of Secret Service. Okay, what does Secret Service do? What, what, why was it originally created? Anybody know? <laughs> it was founded in 1865, actually, um, on the day Lincoln signed to create Secret Service, he was assassinated that day. But a few months later, the actual Secret Service was created. I think that happened, I want to say, March or April, but then it was in July, Secret Service of 1865 was created. It was not to protect the president or any officials. In fact, it was up until 2003, it was under the Department of Treasury. Secret Service was created to fight counterfeit. Now, in their training, the problem was there were a lot of counterfeit bills. In fact, the greenbacks even today is the most counterfeited bill in the world, if you guys didn't know. Um, not that I am any expert in this field, but <laughs> but it is. If you go overseas, then you realize like how strict they look at your uh, green money, greenback. Um, but Secret Service was created to fight counterfeit bills. In their training, they do not study all the fake bills that exist. In their training, they look at the standard of their bill, the real deal, from the plates to the pa paper to all the little detail that most people don't even know about. They make the Secret Service know the standard to which the U.S. Treasury made their bill. Because when they look at any other bill and see, they can know if it meets that standard or not. It's not, hey, look at all these bills and how do they relate and how do they check out? Is it close? Close enough? Yeah. No. Does it match the standard of the U.S. Treasury? 
Unless you know the truth, can you know the lie? Unless you know the standard, can you know what falls short? That was their in their training. Now, how does that relate with our Christian walk? I think there's a lot of standards out there. And a lot of churches have tried to create it. And a lot of men try to be like God in creating that standard of what church and religion look like. You know what I hate so much? People look at me and go, oh, you're so religious, and saying that as a compliment. You guys, you guys ever heard people say, oh, you're so religious, you're the religious type, and, and think that they're giving me a compliment. No, I hate that, because religion, as I've heard someone define it, is man's attempt to attain God or reach God. Christian faith is God's attempt to reach man or has died to be one with man. Where man's attempt to be one with God versus man, God's attempt to be one with man. God gave his life, came down, died on the cross for our sins. That's a standard. God denied himself, gave his own life. And we want to be like God and criticize and kill and destroy others? I, I, right? That doesn't even make sense. To those two standards the standard of the law versus standard of life. So what does that look like? How does, if we eat, in addition to um, being like Christ, how do we eat and be more like Christ as opposed to the law, eating people? I think first we have to recognize that how do we go from knowledge of good and evil to life? Uh, in Revelations 2, if you remember in, in, in the Revelations, John is taken up to heaven and sees and gives a word and to the church in Ephesus and he gives affirmation. Like, oh, you are so faithful. You do good in all these things. Right? But then he says, but I have this against you. In verse 4 he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or your first love in NIV translation. You have abandoned your first love. It says, all the other things that he did right, I mean, or the Ephesian church, that you were patient, endured, you bear with those who were evil, um, you tested, you f I mean, you just right on with God's word and kicked out the false prophets. You did all of that great. But I have this one against you. You have forgotten your first love. You have abandoned your first love. And it comes down to what is our relationship like with Jesus? It's not just eating of his bread. Are we abiding in him, living with him, knowing him? That's the hard part. Religion, you can know Jesus. You can know about Jesus. You can know his word. Be super religious and do all the right and avoid the wrong and not be one with Jesus. That's religion. That's true of no knowledge of good and evil. All your head without the heart. To get from the knowledge of good and evil to the tree of life is about our heart. It's about our love relationship. It's about walking with him, hearing him, knowing him. So I'm glad you're going to Jesus' love. Um, and the Bible talks about this um, 
tree of life multiple times throughout the Bible. Most people miss it. In fact, I miss some of them I didn't even know about. Even, uh, uh, there were a few, but Proverbs 15.4 I, I wrote, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it in it breaks the spirit, meaning the critical, <laughs> the, the knowledge of good and evil, the critical spirit, that's the other spirit. But gentleness is a tree of life, is what he alludes to. Uh, I, I just read from Revelations uh, 2, but there's also this picture of the river of life in Revelations 22. Okay, you guys know that? Let me read it this for you. This is one of my favorite ones. Um, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. And, and this is, I think, also in Ezekiel, river of life and the trees planted. So I, I the tr tree of life is shown from the very beginning in, in the garden. And at the end, when God renews this, his kingdom, the, whether it's New Jerusalem or the millennial kingdom, and there's a lot of debates on, on that. But bottom line is the future that we have looked forward to, he brings back the river of, he brings back the tree of life that's planted, not at the center now, but it's at the either side of the river, planted deep. And, and that's a brand new picture, slightly different from the Garden of Eden. And its fruit is, bears fruit monthly, and its leaves are for healing. I look at that, and I think, okay, there are things that we are to eat of it and that we are to be. We are to bear fruit continuously, not just once a year fruit, but monthly, continuously, and leaves are for healing. Like we are sprouting. We who are planted deep in the river of life, and the river of life, I see that as a Holy Spirit that comes from the center of the garden or center of the, the, uh, the altar of God, and it flows out and goes deeper and deeper and becomes a river. It starts as a stream, comes out of God's temple, and becomes so deep that it becomes a river, and the trees that are planted soaks up the water that gives life, and they are, this is the picture of heavenness on earth that God is pointing to in the revelations. So after all the victory, all the, you know, Satan's cast out, here's a picture that you have to look forward to. And it's about this tree of life planted deep. And you're drinking from that, bearing fruit. Do I know the full grasp of this metaphor? No. <laughs> I'll be the first one to say, I have no clue. But there's a beautiful picture what I saw in the beginning in Genesis to what I see in the Revelations. He starts and ends. You, you were kicked out, Adam. You're kicked out because you can't have the, the tree of life anymore, the eternal life. Then Revelation is like, ooh, I want you to have it now. In fact, it's going to be monthly, continuously. These are for healing. You guys see the picture of that? When I get into some conversations with people i'm like okay the bible from the old testament to the new testament spans a few thousand years with 40 different authors in different wrote in different geographic locations and when you look combine all of that 66 books together 
you can only recognize one author because from the Genesis to the Revelations and everything in between, the bookends, you, there's this synchronizing of the one story of what God's doing, and you can only appreciate only one author can put all that together and make it so beautiful in one huge poetry. It's a beautiful book. But I see the two trees and finishing with the trees. And everything in between. And, and I, we don't have time to go into the rivers and everything else. And the temple of counts. There's so much more in Genesis. And the more we study and read, it's life-giving. Not religion, but life. Like, God, you are good. <laughs> this is pretty amazing the more we study. You guys...